Well, if you were to name the most common ending to, you know, a mo- kind of like the cliche ending to a movie or a kid's book, what would you be? Or what, what would it be? How would you say it? There we go. And they all live happily ever after. After all the problems have been solved and, you know, all the storylines, all the issues have been worked out, uh, this is how the story wrapped up, wraps up. It's a happy ending. You know, the, the hero uh, defeats everybody. The, the good guys uh, win against the bad guys. Uh, good triumphs against evil. And we want good to win against evil. We want the hero to triumph. We want the bad guys to lose. And we want the story to be complete uh, with a happy ending. And uh, Katie's happy ending, I forgot to ask you permission for this, so maybe I shouldn't say it. But, okay, she, she's giving me permission right there, so it's great. Uh, Katie's happy ending for any movie or any TV show is always that uh, they get married and have babies. Uh, and so we're always, like, whenever a show ends, and, the, you know, maybe the guy gets the girl, but she's like, but... but they didn't get married and have babies, and so we always joke, you know, when a movie ends, we're like, but it's not a happy ending yet, because they didn't, you know, they didn't get married and have babies yet, so we always joke about that. But we love happy endings, and we want happy endings, but the reality is we don't always get happy endings for the things that we go through in life. We have situations that don't end well, and we might have relationships in our life that remain broken, that remain painful. We live today with the hurts, the wounds, and the scars from our past that show the unhappy endings that we've had. They could be physical, like literal physical scars that you have, or just emotional, psychological scars that you have from things that did not end well in life. Marriages end, families break up, people die, cars are totaled, houses burn down, jobs are lost, people get cancer, have heart attacks and strokes and miscarriages. We've had plans for our life that didn't work out. Plans and parts of our stories that we wouldn't have written for ourselves. And we have many unhappy endings. And sometimes we may try our hardest at something to get a happy ending out of it. And we pray and pray and pray and we try and try and try. And we do all we can and still we have an unhappy ending to it. And we do everything right. I did everything I was supposed to. And then still it's an unhappy ending. And we even ask God for things to work out. And it doesn't happen. And so if you have a bulletin or anything you're writing on, or you can just mentally um, think, what are some of the unhappy endings you've had in your life? And you can write those down uh, and just take a moment and think about the things in your life that haven't had an happy ending. What are those things in your life that right now are like, I don't, this hasn't been a, right now I have this thing, I don't know if it's going to be a happy ending, or what are the things that have already not been a happy ending? Just take a moment and reflect on that. I'll give you about a minute. And the question is, what do we do with those? We have these unhappy endings to things. What do we do with those? How do we handle them? We're continuing our series in the book of Micah called Micah, Who is a God Like You? And this is our second to last message. 
And Micah lived about a little over 700 years before Christ. And he was a spokesperson for God. And the passage we will be hearing from today, as I mentioned at the beginning, is called a lament. And a lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And you find a lot of these in the book of Psalms. They're scattered throughout the Bible. But you find a lot in the book of Psalms. And lament psalms are one of the most common types of psalms. There's various kinds. And lament psalms are one of the most common types. And lament complain to God about a situation. Complaint is what makes them unique, but they also include confidence in God. So there's complaint and confidence in lament. Lament is not just venting or griping. Complaining without trust uh, or confidence is not a biblical lament. And so for lamenting biblically, it has both complaint and confidence. But the thing is, the trust doesn't happen always after everything is better. It happens in the midst of things being still messed up a lot of the times in the Bible, with everything going wrong. And often, a lot of times, these psalms, they move from lament to praise because they've seen God change the situation around. It's kind of like they expressed the lament that they had, and then maybe they later on, um, that was how they were feeling in the midst of it, and then later on they added on, you know, maybe if you have like a prayer journal, you write down the prayers you had, or you're journaling how you feel about something, and later on in your journal you write down, God answered this prayer. It's almost like these psalms were these two moments of, this is how it was going. Oh, and then I wrote the rest of it later when it changed. So they moved from lament to praise. But then not every lament psalm moves to praise. There are some that just stay negative in complaint. But they're still confident in God. Complaint and confidence are two of these features. When you read through the psalms, these might be the ones that make you feel a little uncomfortable. They're not the ones that you... Uh, walk through Hobby Lobby and find um, you know, the canvas wall prints that you're going to put in your living room. Like, ah, you know, here's this lament I'm going to put in my living room wall, the ones that are on the, on the coffee mugs or the keychains, and not the ones that, are, that you're going to post on Facebook. But the reality is that these laments match the actual experience of our lives, is that we live in the messiness and the difficulty of disappointments, frustrations, pain, and suffering of a fallen world corrupted by sin that has all kinds of things that that hurt us and don't go our way. We live in the middle of unhappy endings. And these laments are expressing people that are having unhappy endings in their circumstances and in their relationships, and they're bringing those before God. And, And laments teach us how to relate to God when life doesn't go as we want it to. They teach us how to express our anger, how to express our sadness, how to express our disappointment to God, even when we're angry and disappointed with God. Not just, I'm disappointed this didn't work out. God, I'm going to tell you about it, and you're going to kind of be like my psychologist, my therapist. But it's like, God, I'm disappointed with you. You let me down. I'm angry. You were supposed to be with me in this. This is how it's supposed to go. And they invite us to bring, lament for God's invitation to bring our emotions to him, even the ones that aren't sunny and happy. They give us the words to say when we don't know what to say. When all we're asking is why, as we wet our pillow with the tears of whatever we're going through. And in Micah 7, 1 through 7, Micah brings his grief and his sorrow to God. He shows us how he's feeling. And Micah didn't get a happy ending. We've been going through this book, seeing the messages he was preaching. And we've seen he had some success. He doesn't really record it in his book, but in Jeremiah 26, we see that uh, Hezekiah had this turnaround at one point in his ministry, but we see how he's feeling overall about his ministry. This passage lets us see that 
he didn't have a happy ending, and it helps us know how to deal with our unhappy endings. We see Micah's grief, and also his hope and his confidence. And so Micah begins in verse 1 by saying, Woe is me! And often we kind of use that to make fun of people a little bit, like while they're complaining all the time, like, you know, they're kind of like a woe is me person. Or we'll say to somebody like, oh, woe is you, you know, you're always like complaining. But Mike is actually saying these words in the Bible, woe is me. He's like, I should be pitied. I, you know, this is terrible. My situation is terrible. He's expressing grief and sorrow over his own situation. He's lamenting his own circumstances. And then the rest of the verse says, why is in sorrow? And he uses an image. He says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered. As when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. So he's saying he's like a vineyard or an orchard owner uh, who has worked hard to produce a harvest. But then he goes out at harvest time to glean the grapes or to pick the the first, you know, the first batch of ripe figs uh, that his mouth was just watering to try. But when he gets there, he finds nothing to harvest. There's no fruit from his labor. The plants are just bare. There's nothing on them. And then verse 2 explains the image. What was he hoping to find? Verse 2 in chapter 7 says, The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. The vineyard and orchard that Mike has been you know, working on it represents the southern kingdom of Judah. That was where he lived. He lived in the time when the nation of Israel split. The northern kingdom of Israel had gone into exile. southern kingdom of Judah is where he is living. And the people to whom he's preaching is this kingdom. That's the, that's the vineyard, that's the orchard that he's working on. And the fruit represents the types of people that he hoped to find. What Micah hoped to find was this vineyard, this nation that was full of people who were godly and upright. And godly... It's going to sound like a broken record, but it translates the, translates the adjective version of kessid, a word we talked about last week and that we talked about in two of the passages uh, in Luke back in December. Uh, but in Micah 6.8, that was one of the key words, that important verse told us what God wanted to see in his people. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And kindness there is the Hebrew word chesed. It's the noun. Um, and here, uh, in this chapter where it says godly, it's the adjective describing you know, godly people, chesed people. And it's often translated as steadfast love in the ESV translation. And it's compassionate, loyal love to covenant partners who are in dire need. And so it's like um, you know, all of us as a church, we're like in covenant relationship with each other. It's not that we've signed something, but it's that like God has brought us together in relationship with him, in a covenant relationship with him. And so now we're in relationship with each other, or you're in a covenant relationship with your husband or wife, and now it's like, okay, I have a responsibility to them, a commitment to them, and now when I show, uh, to show chesed to them is to be, I have compassionate, loyal love to help them in their dire need. And Micah wanted to find people who loved kindness, who loved chesed. He wanted to find people of compassionate, loyal love. He wanted to find faithful people, and instead... All of them had perished from the earth, he says, which is a bit of an exaggeration. Of course, there's got to be some people out there who are, uh, but oftentimes the pro- you can, he just feels alone. He also wanted to find upright people. These are people of you know, straightness. They're not crooked. They're people of straightness, fairness, integrity, righteousness, honesty, and justice. You know, upright people. They do right by other people. They don't cheat other people. You can trust them. 
upright people are straight instead of crooked. But Micah says, I found none of them. You know, again, he's exaggerating. There's got to be some. You know, it can't just be everybody. But he's like, I'm just finding nothing out here. And what does he find instead? The rest of verse 2 gives us another image. So verse 2 says, The godly has perished from the earth. There's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. And each hunts the other with a net. So Micah goes out to the vineyard, or the orchard, whichever image, of God's people to find the fruit of godly and upright people, but he finds none. And instead he finds people who are lying in wait to ambush others like thieves and criminals, and they're setting up nets as traps like hunters that often use nets uh, to catch birds and stuff. So you put out a net and you grab the birds with the, with the net. And so he finds people, you know, they're like hunting each other, they're like sitting and wait, trying, waiting to ambush each other. And verse 3 explains this image. He says, Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. What Micah finds in this nation are people who are good at doing evil. Both their hands are set to work on it. It's like, you know, it's kind of a play on words. It's like, you know, you're a really good person. He says, the only thing you're good at is doing evil. You know, and he's like, you're, you're giving your full effort to it with both your hands. The prince and the judge who are supposed to be upholding justice and taking care of people and making sure you know, there's fairness and equity and people, you know, justice is being done there. Instead, asking for a bribe, they're being paid off in corrupting justice. They're filling their own pockets. And the great man, which can refer to, you know, anybody who's kind of great, you know, leaders, the powerful people of influence, they're uttering, he says, they're speaking out the evil desires of their soul. You know, they're, they're talking about it to others, they're planning, they're plotting, saying this is what I want to do and how to get what they want. And thus, he says, they're, they're weaving it together. It's kind of like this, you know, they're laying out traps uh, like hunters with their net and this is how they're weaving that net together. They're like plotting it, they're weaving a net together. And so Micah sees a bunch of people acting like bandits in the bushes, plotting how are we going to get these people, how are we going to plot an ambush. He's a bunch of people going out with, like hunters with their nets to catch their prey. And the victims of these bandits and hunters are the very people who are supposed to be taking care of and protecting and, and, and upholding and lifting up. They're plotting against their own countrymen to fulfill their own evil desires. And verse 4 gives his final image for what he finds. He says, The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. Micah pictures himself as the owner of a vineyard or an orchard. He's worked hard for it to produce fruit. He's preached his heart out. He's delivered the hard words that God called him and empowered him to deliver. He's told them that they've turned from God, and if they don't turn back, there's going to be disaster. He's addressed the elephant in the room. But when it comes time for harvest, he walks out to the vineyard and finds none of the fruit he desired. Instead of sweet grapes and sweet figs, he finds prickly briars and a hedge of thorns. I wish, I kind of wish I had like you know a clump of thorns or briars so I could bring it in for an image. Just like you know, if I had a bag of grapes, you know, they'd be like, oh, you know, I would. You guys would like if I passed that. I mean, you know, we'd all have to sanitize or whatever. But you'd like if I passed around some grapes. But it's like, yeah, when you pass down this clump of thorns, you'd all be like, oh, you know. So it's so like, if you show up to come and eat something, you show up to your garden and you're like, oh, I expected to be a bunch of fruit here, and it's like, oh, I got his weeds. But even worse. It's just, whoa, it's just all these thorns and briars and stuff. That's what he comes and he finds. He'd hoped people would turn from their ways. He wanted to find people who were now godly and upright, taking care of the people, upholding justice, lifting up the needy and vulnerable. But instead, what he find, found were hedges of storm bushes. He found people who were, who were obstacles and barriers to justice 
and mercy. He found people who were prickly and piercing and sneering, wounding and tearing their victims with their tangled mess of spikiness. And if you're looking for mercy or sympathy, you'll only find them to be hard and piercing, one scholar said. So because of this, what Micah, because of what Micah finds, he speaks to them directly in verse 4, telling them, here's the consequences. This He's been describing them, so okay, I'm going to talk to you. Here's what's going to happen. Verse 4, the second half, he says, The day of your watchmen, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. And watchmen, if you picture like a city with walls around it, the watchmen would be on the walls and they'd be looking out to see if there's danger coming. And they, you know, you kind of see in movies or whatever, people would ring a bell or something, um, or they'd call out with the, to say, you know, there's, people, there's an army coming or something like that. Watchmen are standing in the walls looking out for danger of the city. And this metaphor was, off, was used a lot of times for the prophets. Like, okay, they're standing as watchmen for the people of God. I'm watching out like, hey, we're going astray. There's danger coming because of that. And so Mike is saying, like, what? your watchmen have been talking to you. I've been telling you. Isaiah was someone who lived at the same time as Micah. We, your watchmen have been telling you, and you know, people who are living before him, Hosea, we've been telling you that this is coming. And he's saying, okay, the day is coming. The day we've been talking about is coming. Your punishment is upon you. And what they had said was, if you didn't turn back to God, a foreign nation is going to come, it's going to destroy Jerusalem, it's going to take you into exile out of this land. It's going to remove you from the land. And that day has come. And he says it's going to be a day of confusion. It's going to be chaos, disorder, unrest, and panic. I mean, can you imagine, like, uh, if all you have your city and all of a sudden it's just surrounded on all sides. It's like, what do we do? You know, it's just chaos and confusion. And so he gives them commands in verse 5. He says, Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. Basically, he tells the people not to trust anyone. Don't trust your neighbors, don't trust your friend, don't even trust your wife. You know, it kind of goes in order of intimacy. Your neighbor, your friend, your wife. Uh, don't. Why? Verse 6 tells us, For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. And these are violations of the fifth commandment, of the Ten Commandments, which says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And Micah summarizes by saying, A man's enemies are the men in his own house. The people you should be able to rely on for safety and security and for protection are the very people who you, you can't trust, because they're your enemies. And so he's saying you can't even trust your son, your father, your mother, you know, whatever. Those people you're supposed to be able to rely on. It's like, okay, you can't trust your leaders, you can't trust the, trust the judges, or what, all these powerful people, but you can't even turn back to your family. It's not even safe there. And it's like this, uh, this attitude of self-interest that characterizes the leaders has infected the people. And how couldn't it? It's like they're out of, it's like survival of the fittest in this place. And when their punishment comes, there's going to be no one to turn to for comfort because everyone's just going to be out for themselves. Everyone lives selfishly out of self-interest and self-protection. Even the people in your own house. You can't trust them either. And Micah gave his life to turning this nation around. He, he preached the hard words God gave him to say. He mourned. We've seen him lament in previous uh, chapters and verses over the state of his country and its fate if they didn't change. And they had become a nation of corrupt leaders who don't care about the people and the people don't care for each other. Justice was absent. The sweet fruit of kindness, mercy, and compassion were nowhere to be found. 
Instead, there are a bunch of prickly thorn bushes, poking, scratching, biting, and devouring one another. And this is why Micah says, Woe is me. He gave his life to what God told him to do. He didn't hold back, but in the end, he didn't see a change in the people he preached to and prayed for and cried over. And this is his complaint. He laid down his life in service to being God's will and has nothing to show for it. The people didn't change. Disaster will still come upon his nation. They'll be taken into exile. He's one of the people that's going to, this is all going to happen to. It's not like he's you know, living outside the city or outside of this nation. He's like, well, you know, stinks to be you guys. It's like, this is coming on all of us because you guys didn't turn around. That's Micah's grief and his complaint. And verse 7 shows us Micah's hope and confidence. He says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. You know, it's like, that's you, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah contrasts himself with everyone else, but as for me, he isn't going to be like them. When the punishment comes, he's going to act differently than them. He refuses to be dragged down into their, you know, I'm just looking out for myself, I'm just looking to survive, I'm going to do what's best for me, you know, this biting and devouring one another to survive or to get ahead. I'm not going to be dragged down to this mess. He says, I'm going to look to the Lord. And this word look here is the same word that was used above uh, for watchman. Uh, watchman is like a noun form of it, and now it's the verb form. And so Mike is like, I'm not going to leave my post. Uh, if you can picture it like in, down in the city, everything's going crazy. Uh, but Mike is still up at his post on the wall as a watchman. I've told you about the disaster coming, but I'm, and it's coming, and now I've told you it's, it's here, but I'm going to still be at my post, and now I'm going to look for God's salvation to come. Uh, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, you know, the, in Two Towers, when Gandalf comes, he says, look for me on the fifth day, and there's that moment they keep watching and watching and watching, and they're battling all these orcs at Helm's Deep, and then finally he comes, and there's this big burst of ray of light, and there's this hope that comes uh, with that. And so he's like, I'm going to keep looking for the Lord. You didn't listen, but I'm going to look. He's still watching and waiting for God, and he says, I'm going to wait for the God of my salvation. He's confident that God is going to hear him. And he, God is going to come through for him. And the rest of the chapter, next week we'll get into, what is this salvation that he thinks God is going to bring? What is it that he's waiting for God to do? It gives us a picture of it. And it is that those who remain faithful to God can expect their gracious and faithful God to restore them. And it's been a theme throughout Micah that there's this remnant of people who remain faithful we to remain faithful to him. Like he's going to come, he's going to restore us. And so that's where the end of the book comes. He's like, I'm going to wait for God um, to do what he's always said he's going to do. And so Micah did everything God told him to do, and he didn't get to see the fruit he wanted to see. He went to the vineyard and found no grapes. He went to the orchard and found no figs. There's no fruit. Micah didn't get everything he was supposed to, He did everything he was supposed to do, but he didn't get the outcome he wanted. He preached his heart out and gave decades of his life to this. It would have been great if the nation had turned from their ways. They could have avoided this disaster and a big revival took place. Like, Micah, you started a big revival and his face is on the front page of the papers. But that didn't happen. Micah's lived with an unhappy ending. And even though we're now reading Micah and paying close attention to him, uh, we can see that 
people in his time weren't paying close attention to him. And Hezekiah did. We know from Jeremiah 26 that there is a moment when Hezekiah uh, paid attention and they turned around. But eventually the city does fall. Uh, the southern king of Judah gets taken into exile, captivity, uh, by the nation of Babylon. But, and this is true for many of the prophets. They were not popular people. Even though they're saying, guys, things are going wrong here. We need to turn back to God. There's disaster coming. Most people are like, man, you know, everything's fine. We want to keep doing things our way. And the, you know, the, clep, the cares of the world, the clutches of you know, riches had gripped on their heart. And prophets were mostly kind of ignored. And we see that. Micah's like, I preached my heart out. I gave my life to this. And nobody, they didn't listen. And so it just still happened to us. So what does Micah's story show us about our lives? What, is it, what can we see from Micah's story that we can take for us? We see first that doing what God asks us to do doesn't mean it will always turn out well. Doing what God asks us to do doesn't mean it will always turn out well. Success for Micah wasn't turning the nation of Israel around to his preaching. Success is obedience to God. Success is faithfulness. Success is doing what God has told us to do. Doing what God asks us to do doesn't mean it will always turn out well in this life. And success is faithfulness. Success is obedience. Success is doing what God has asked us to do, no matter the results in this time period. And there's a version of Christianity that leaves no room for passages like this. It's a version of Christianity that is infected uh, that's infected with the American dream. And the, and the American dream says, you can be anything you want to be, you just set your mind to it, the opportunities are endless, there's all this freedom, and you just have to, you just have to do it. The sky's the limit. You know, there's just endless opportunities in America. That's the American dream. People move here uh, to get it. And so that's the American dream. When we can create an American dream version of Christianity, we have a Christianity that says, if you just believe enough, you'll get what you want. And it, it says that the good news is that if you have God in your life, you will have earthly wealth, health, success, and blessing. Your dreams will come true if you just believe. And this is commonly called uh, the prosperity gospel. Like God's going to give you health, wealth, blessing, and success in this life if you just believe enough. And if you're not getting those things, you, it's, you're lacking faith. And it's an American dream version of Christianity. It's been infected with the American dream. And let me just say clearly, this is completely against... Scripture, this Americanized version of Christianity, this prosperity gospel, is false. It doesn't fit with what we see in the teachings of the Bible or with what the people of the Bible experience. I mean, look at Micah. Many of them experienced unhappy endings. And God is not a genie who wants, who grants us our every wish if we just believe enough. You know, God's just up in the sky and he's just waiting. And come on, promise, if you would just believe enough. I'll give you the exact thing you're desiring. But what kind of father is that? <laughs> that God is parenting us, and he's bringing us up into maturity, to be mature humans, people who reflect his image, and that's just not how it works. This version of Christianity also leaves no room for lament. There's no reason to lament things. There's no reason for passages like this in the Bible if, it's, uh, if you just believe enough, you'll have what you want. And it's like, well, if you don't have what you want, that's just your fault. You have not believed. You haven't believed hard enough. You haven't believed strong enough. Your faith needs to grow. And the question is, can we live with a God 
who doesn't give us everything we want or desire? Do we still want Him, even if that's the case? Will we obey, even if it means pain and disappointment? Like, I want you to take these steps toward this, but it's not going to end in a pleasant way. Will we do what's right, even if others won't respond rightly to it? Will we do His will, even if it means suffering and rejection? It's not going to be easy, and the laments of Scripture give us permission to bring that reality to God. They invite us to practice honesty with God. And in talking about lament, one of my seminary professors said, intimacy with God has its privileges. Not just anyone can speak to God this way. God welcomes our complaint. He has this open-door policy on grievances, on grievances on how he's running the world. When, when we think he's done us wrong, when, he, when we think he's mistreated us, he opens the door and says, I have an open door policy. Come on in. Tell me, tell me what's, what's bothering you. When we think he's done us wrong, when we're sick and tired of the way things are, we can go to him. In fact, going to him is the best thing we can do. And that's what biblical laments are telling us. They give us the words to say to continue relationship with God when we feel that we've been mistreated by him or that he's mismanaged our life. They provide the path to reconciliation when we feel hurt. God, you've done me wrong. In biblical laments, when we don't know what to say, these laments give us words of how to express it to God and they give us permission to express it to God. The worst thing we can do that we people, so many people you talk to say, well, I had this thing go wrong in my life and so I'm done with God. That's when we cut ourselves off when we're just silent and we don't talk to Him. That's how relationships die is when we stop talking about the things we're hurt by. But... God invites us, these laments invite us to come to him. So what unhappy endings do you have that you thought about earlier, that you wrote down? What has not turned out as you wanted it? Maybe you've tried your hardest at something and you've got nothing. Maybe you tried your hardest in a relationship to make it right and it didn't end where you wanted it to. Maybe you as somebody you love, you just want them to know Christ. You want them to grow. You've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. You've done everything you could. And they, in the end, they just aren't interested or they reject you. You won't talk to you anymore. And it's like, God, why? I did everything you wanted me to do. Or maybe it's just some sort of physical thing or health thing that just keeps coming back and coming back. And you're saying, God, why? Or maybe it's just uh, something that you thought your life would turn out a certain way. And it's like, why did that never happen? I wanted it to be this way, and it just never came to fruition, God. Why didn't that happen? So here are three things we can do. What should we do with those? These are three, three things. Some of it's not exactly what to do, but some are things to know. So first, grieve it. Grieve it. What did you lose? What loss did you experience? What did you desire that you didn't get, or... Or what was taken? What was the loss there? Express it to God. Grieve it. Let other people into it. And we usually have two different extremes when it comes to our feelings. Feelings are evil, or feelings are everything. And we like stuff them down, and like, nope, can't show feeling. And we kind of sometimes believe this lie of like, you know, Christians are always supposed to be calm and joyful. Uh, have you ever read the Gospels and seen Jesus? He's like, emotion coming out all the time, whether it's 
compassion or sadness or anger. Uh, he laments when he's on the cross. He, lo- he met, laments several times over the state. Of, he uses this exact lament that we just read. Um, I think it's verse 6. I don't have it right in front of me right here. Yeah, verse 6. He laments that exact thing when he's going through his ministry. This is what these people are like. And on the cross he laments, but he's also expressing confidence in God. Jesus has all this emotion that he's showing. So we have that one extreme where we stuff it, thinking any emotion is bad. The other extreme is that we bow down to emotions as our ultimate guide, and we don't ever question them, and we don't let anybody else question them. And it's just like, nope, that's how I feel, and it's right, and it has to be that way, and we just, it's kind of like one of the two extremes, but the a middle way is to, to pray our, our feelings, our emotions, and to bring them to God and bring them into relationship with God. Because if we stuff them, they're not being related to God. And if we are uh, bowing down to them, well, then they're our God, instead of making God our God and Lord. The Bible contains laments, even in its book of worship, the Psalms. So lament is a way to worship God. And God is telling us that it is okay, He is okay with people expressing their grief to Him, and if it's worship, he's even honored by it. He's even telling us he's okay with people being mad at and disappointed with him. And we should be okay with it too. God can handle it. But we have to go back to the reality that a biblical lament is complaint and confidence. Griping and ranting is not a lament. That's just, you know, that's just venting. Uh, biblical lament is complaint and confidence. There's trust there. And so we're always trying to bring it to God. That's why it's in relation to God. So first, grieve it. Second, know that Jesus is with you in it. Jesus, know that Jesus is with you in it. He is with you. He feels with you. And he feels for you. Hebrews 4, 15-16 tells us that Jesus is our high priest who sympathizes with us so we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Micah is a spokesperson for God, so in a way he's expressing God's heart. God wanted to find fruit too. Jesus expressed the words as I said of verse 6 during his time of his ministry, like, uh, everyone's this, nobody can trust you. Son is turning against father and daughter against mother, and it's, everyone's turning against each other. That's what I'm finding here when I'm walking around Israel. He weeps over Jerusalem as he's entering it during his final week there. Jesus, the Son of God, shows us God's heart, and Jesus lamented when he found things as they were not supposed to be. And God did not stay distant from our pain, suffering, and affliction. And there's a book I read this summer about uh, a pastor who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries named Augustine. And in one of the chapters, the, the author was talking about how did Augustine uh, deal with justice? And then specifically, how did he, okay, there's justice, but then there's also injustice. There's evil in the world. So how did Augustine respond to the problem of evil? Uh, and said, he said that uh, Augustine, how he was dealing with it, he's saying, God doesn't give an answer to evil like it's an intellectual problem to be solved or to be explained. But he gives a, God gives a response to it. And so the author said this. It's, he said, In Augustine's sermons, what is offered is not an answer to evil, as if it were merely a problem or question. Instead, what is offered is a vision of the gracious action of God who takes on evil. The cross of Christ, the incarnate God, is the site of cosmic inversion where all that is not supposed to be is absorbed by the Son 
taken to the depths of hell and vanquished by the resurrection. Evil isn't answered, it is overcome. God doesn't abstractly solve a problem. God condescends to inhabit and absorb the mess we've made of the world. Jesus lived the perfect life. He did the perfect will of God. He did everything right. But he experienced the most pain and suffering of of us all. He had the most unhappy ending. Even though he did all that God asked him to do, and the exact way he was supposed to do it at the exact right time, he had the most unhappy ending. And he can understand what we're going through. Jesus lamented during his ministry, and he lamented on the cross. And the point is that God not only invites us to come to him with our pain, but he entered into ours. Every single thing that sin could ever do to us and to this world, Jesus took upon himself on the cross. And so he's with us in our pain. He can sympathize with us in compassion. He's been there. The third, what hope does God give you beyond this? Whatever those things are that you've had on a happy ending to, what, is God, what hope does God give you beyond it? If I were to sum up this passage with a big idea, it would be this. God is our hope beyond our unhappy endings. God is our hope beyond our unhappy endings. That's what Micah does. He starts with, woe is me, and then he talks about the people and all the verses in the middle. At the end, he returns to himself. But as for me, what I'm going to do, I'm going to look to God. I'm going to wait for his salvation. He hears me. And so Micah's like, woe is me, I'm going to look to God. God is his hope beyond his unhappy ending that he's having at that point in time. God gives us hope beyond our current circumstances. God will put an end to unhappy endings. Our unhappy endings aren't the end of the story for us. Our unhappy endings don't have to be the end of our happiness or the end of our joy. How do we know that? Because Jesus has already lived the worst unhappy ending that we deserve and that we could come to. And he's come out on the other side of it. Jesus is the guarantee of our better future. And there are many psalms that express hope because of. Hope because of God doing this. God did this, and I have hope because of that. And laments are often hope in spite of. That's what a lament is. It's hope in spite of. That's how it can complain have confidence. It's hope in spite of. Here's what I'm complaining about, but I still have confidence. I have hope in spite of what I'm going through right now. Mike is saying, woe is me, but I'm going to look to God. I have hope in spite of all of this pain that I'm seeing, all this terribleness. It's saying, even though everything is a mess, God is still on the throne. I'm still looking to Him. He's still my Savior. He's still going to come through to me for me. I have confidence in Him. The confidence of laments is a hope of laments is hope in spite of. Even though we can't see the end out of it, we know God will come through. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our disappointment, in the midst of mess and brokenness and suffering we find ourselves in, we can hold on to God by saying, God, in spite of all that's going on, I know you're on the throne. God, in spite of this being a complete mess, I believe you're in control. God, in spite of the pain I'm in, I believe you are good. And so if you wrote, if you wrote those unhappy endings down, it's kind of... Or imagine if you had like a little list you wrote down, you put a little box around it. On the top, you can write in spite of over the top of it, and then it says in spite of all these unhappy endings. You can wrote right on the bottom. You know, I look to God. In spite of this, I look to God. Or in spite of these things I wrote down, 
I'm confident in God. That's what we get to say. We write out our unhappy endings that we've had, things that we're going through right now. In spite of all these things I write down, I'm still confident in God. I still hope in God. I still look to God to be the one to bring me out of this, to have give me hope beyond my unhappy endings. And just as we close, you know, our world doesn't know how to deal with its emotions properly. We saw last week, uh, we saw on the news how the capital was being, our very own capital being ransacked by our own citizens, of people feeling that uh, they've been, the person, they, the president, uh, was being robbed of a victory that he should have gotten, and how are they, however else they're interpreting it. Uh, and then we saw earlier in 2020 and throughout the year that we're having protests. Um, which are fine, you know, peaceful protests are fine um, for racial injustice and racial uh, inequality, but then turning into riots of people like, what, are they, what am I going to do with all these feelings? And we wonder, where's all this anger coming from? And that anger is not a bad thing. And the Bible says, be angry and do not sin. And Jesus had anger, and often he expressed it in uh, physical ways. Um, but you, sometimes you can think of protests as like... Uh, a public form of lament. It's like a bunch of people saying, like, there's this thing wrong with our world, with the society, and now we're going to all lament it together in a way. And it's not a biblical lament because there, it requires complaint and confidence in God. But there's like this way that people are trying to lament the current situations. But we are called to be people who show our world how to lament, how to, how to deal with sadness, disappointment, and anger and to not take matters into our own hands. That's, that's what's happening. People are saying, like, this is wrong, and then we've been cheated, and so guess what we're going to do? We're going to commit violence. We're going to destroy things. We're going to take matters into our own hands. Like, you guys took matters into your hands, and now we're going to do it too. And it's like, well, wait a second. This is just, now you, you can't fight wrong with wrong. It's like looting people's offices and you know, breaking down businesses. Like, this isn't the way to do it. It's not what the Bible shows us. So, how do we show people how to deal with sadness and disappointment and anger in a way that is not taking matters into our own hands? So as a community, for each other, we're, the Bible tells us in Romans 12, weep with those who weep. And so we lament with each other when we have something in our lives that's like, this is experience the brokenness of sin here in my life. I'm experiencing pain. We can lament with each other. And uh, we're called to grieve with one another when we experience loss. But we sometimes have a hard time with that. Uh, sitting with someone else in their pain, in their misery. We want to pull them out of it, or we feel uncomfortable, so we kind of want to move on, or feeling like, you know, you really can't be feeling that way. You need to be uh, feeling a different way. Uh, I need you to be, like, a little more joyful or less happy. You can't be angry. You can't be angry at God, for sure. Uh, you can't be disappointed with God. And we try to move on or pull people out of that. We think that sh- people shouldn't be feeling that way. We might change the topic. Or we say, well... We try to help them look on the bright side or see the silver lining. Or we look for the reason that God is doing it. Or I've heard this line a lot. Like we hear somebody saying all these bad things that have happened. And they share one good thing. And it's like, oh, well, at least you've got to do that. And so we like cheapen people's misery or cheapen people's pain. It's like, can we just sit with people in their pain? Like meant with them as we are also confident in God. We need to learn to do that. That's one reason... uh, I don't like the idea of calling worship gatherings a celebration service uh, because that leaves no room for lament. Because worship isn't always celebration. Sometimes it's 
we have things to lament and grieve over, even as we express confidence in God. So let's pray that we would be a community that can lament together and see uh, the brokenness in our world and bring it to God, even in confidence in Him that He'll one day uh, make it all right. Father, thank You for welcoming us into Your presence with the pain, the grief, anger and disappointment we have sometimes with life and sin and how broken our world is. Lord, would you give us comfort in the words to say? Would you make our hope in your future for us steadfast? Would you let us see it as bright as, as it truly is? In the name we pray. Amen.